0: So uh, this summer, we've been looking at all of these miracles of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, and consistently, we've seen three very simple things. The first is that these miracles all reveal who Jesus is and what Jesus alone can do. And second, these miracles come to all sorts of people, regardless of who they are. And third, if you really want to understand a miracle and you want to know what a miracle reveals, then Context is key. So let's turn to Luke chapter 9, but let's look at verse 28 first. The context. The miracle comes in the next passage, but here's the context of it. You'll follow considerably better if you have scripture open in front of you. Luke 9, 28. Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up the mountain to pray. As he was praying. The appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. So Jesus takes three of his disciples up a mountain. He leaves the others down in the town to work. And up on the mountain, Jesus meets with these two key Old Testament figures. He meets Moses and Elijah. Now, why then? Why Moses and Elijah are not... Any other two random figures from the Old Testament. Why not, for example, Abraham and David or Adam and Eve or, you know, anyone? The reason for this is that these two figures, Moses and Elijah, together, they represent the whole of God's revealed plan for salvation in the Old Testament. They represent all of the laws and all of the prophecies. They didn't write them all, but they do represent them all. They represent, if you like, God's written desire to have a relationship with us. And it is through these people and through this book, the 39 books of the Old Testament, that we know about all of these things that at the time could wreck your relationship with God. Things like leprosy and blood and death and pigs and tombs, all these things that we've looked at each week that could make you unclean. It is also through these books of the Old Testament, that we know about God's plan to bridge that gap, to cleanse us, to approach us, and to restore and to save us. And so now appearing from the dead, these two Old Testament figures talk about what they always talk about. It's the same subject matter that they are always on about. They're talking about the things that they've always been talking about. Verse 31 about how an unclean, unholy people could ever possibly get right with God. They only talk about this. They have interest in only one subject. They are obsessed with salvation. I like these guys. I think they're my kind of people. If they could just squeeze in a little bit about Formula One, I think we could be friends. There's only one thing that matters. Nothing else at all whatsoever matters other than salvation. There is nothing else of any significance at all. So they speak about what they always speak about, which is, how do you get saved? They speak about what Jesus was about to accomplish. This means to fulfill or to complete at Jerusalem. So it turns out their discussion is about how Jesus is the one they've been waiting for, that Jesus is the the fulfillment or the end point, the accomplishment of all of these things that they've been studying under the law and the prophets all of these years. He's the one they've been waiting for. He's the one they've been pointing towards. And then the experience intensifies even further still. Jesus' clothes become dazzling white, Consistently in Scripture, blinding light is associated with the presence of God. And then verse 34 tells us, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And consistently in Scripture, the cloud reveals the presence of God as well. In in Revelation, in fact, you get both. You get lightning coming from the throne of God, surrounded and enveloped within the cloud. In Exodus... So, you know, go from the start of the Bible to the end of the Bible. In the day, they follow a pillar of fire, and a, a, in a pillar of smoke, and in the night, they follow a, a pillar of fire. God is present in the light and in the cloud. And then they, this is Peter, James, and John, the three disciples that went up with him, it says, were afraid as they entered the cloud, which, of course, they were, because they've just gone into the presence of God. They've just gone into that holy place. Remember the thing we did? There's like the outer bit, the kind of inner bit, the really inner bit, and the really, really inner bit. They've gone into that bit, the bit where the priest dies on a string. They've gone into the holy of holies, the presence of God himself. They've gone into the throne room of God. They've fast-forwarded into eternity for a brief moment. They've gone where you do not go. And there's all of this being revealed about the power and the presence of God by the visual experience that they are having and the physical experience they're having, and now there is an audible reveal as well. Verse 35. A voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. So more than Moses, more than Elijah, listen to him. Listen to him above everyone else. An audible reveal that Jesus will reveal even more to come. There is more of God's story. And that's the context for the miracle today. A very clear revelation of the majesty of God and that Jesus himself is the fulfillment of God's plan to do something for us. Jesus will fulfill all of the law and all of the prophets and save us. Now the miracle. That's just the background. Let's turn to verse 37 where um, our gospel reading began today. On the next day, When they'd come down from the mountain, this is a grammatical device linking these two events together, next day mountain. It's telling us that the events down in the town are logically flowing from the events up on the mountain. They are inexorably linked, these two moments. A great crowd met him. Now, you're going to expect this, right? You're going to expect a great crowd to meet Jesus. He's been away. And so there's all of this pent-up demand for miracles and teaching. Uh, This is a bit like with Kat, if she goes to the store for just one hour, when the children hear the uh, V6 coming down the driveway, uh, they run out into the driveway to greet her like a returning sort of queen, like she's been away for months, because they love her. Um, I have footage of the children, when they were very, very little, on uh, a cliff above a beach in Cornwall, weeping uncontrollably, just wailing and screaming and weeping because she dared to go to the bathroom. And uh, my role, of course, was to film this, make sure that's all I could do. So Jesus is back. Yeah, we've missed you. And the crowd is desperate. It, it, I mean, you know, when he, he talks about children, doesn't he? And that, that sort of childish desire to come. This is a, you picture a, a, a little toddler just running towards a parent, whichever is the more popular one. And uh, oh, yeah, we're not going to get into it. Just picture that. That's, this, that's the feeling. The crowd is desperate, and then verse 38 says, Behold, which means shut up, preacher, and get back to the text. Take careful note is what it means. It's one of my favorite words, e-do. Behold, zoom in, hey yins, zoom in and notice this bit. If you, you know, drift off for a bit, come back. A man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. Now, we know Jesus gets this, because we get it, because we've been doing a series on these miracles. We know the significance of an only child. You you think back to that widow at nine who had only one son, and you think back last week to Cat's Sermon, to Jairus, the synagogue ruler, who had only one daughter, and you you get the significance of a child, especially an only child. And and remember also what, what God the Father has just said about Jesus the Son, that he is the chosen one, he's unique his only son. God knows the pain of losing an only son or seeing one suffer. And in their context, remember as well, you needed your kids to look after you. Like, you needed children. When you got older, your children were the ones who would look after you and pay for what you needed. And, uh, you know, it's the same today for some of us, you know, on a preacher's salary, I'm never, ever going to get a Lancia Delta Integrale 1990, the really fancy one. Uh, ben needs to go and become a stockbroker so that I can have my dream car. We, we do this. Sometimes we place our expectations on our kids. I'll just put that out there in case anyone has a spare Lancia Delta Integrale. The uh, Mark II, please, if you could. So in their context, Children mattered. They were their hope for their future, and of course, if you had a child that died, or you had a child that was unwell, or you didn't have any children at all, the tongues would start to wag. They would do bad theology. They would speculate that maybe you had done something to deserve this calamity, and they would wonder if it was somehow your fault. And so this man lives on the edge of society with suspicion and shame and Like all of the others in this situation that we've met so far in this series, he has no power to rescue himself, and he has no hope. And he says, verse 39, Behold, which means, look again, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out, and it convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him. powerful image, the breaking of bones, and will hardly leave him. Constant spiritual and physical torment is what this young man goes through. Now, the dad is not an idiot. He's not a primitive fool. He's not superstitious. They knew about epilepsy, and occasionally when Jesus meets a condition like that, he responds to it as a medical matter, and he heals. But here, Christ accepts the man's diagnosis that this is actually demonic in origin, this problem, and he responds not with healing but with deliverance. In fact, actually, as the boy with the demon comes closer to the presence of God in Christ Jesus, the demon thrashes around even more. The demonic activity ramps up, a confirmation that the demon is real, and maybe the guys in the street don't get it, but the demon gets it. The demon knows who Jesus is. Verse 42, Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. That's the miracle. Verse 43, all were astonished at the majesty of God. And that's the commentary. And that's it. Yet again, another one of these, oh, miracles that gets a verse. But the miracle does reveal down in the town the same thing that was revealed up on the mountain, and that is the majesty of God. The miracle reveals Jesus is, is God. Now, at this point, Kat would say to me, so what? You have observed that two passages next to each other are parallel, and they reach broadly similar conclusions, and that's sort of interesting, perhaps, at least to you, but it's not a sermon, honey, is what she would say. For a sermon, you can't just give a lecture about some theology. You actually have to say, so What? You have to apply it. Otherwise, it's just a speech. It might not even be a very good speech. But if we go back to the start now, go back to that first context passage, and we look at how the characters in the passage react to what is revealed, there we get a so what section because we can read ourselves into that situation and ask, how would I react? So let's do that. Let's see how they react to what is revealed. Back to the mountain first, if you would please. Verse 33. Peter said to Jesus, so they're up on the mountain, Master, it is good that we are here. Correct. It is. It's very good. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Let's make a a rudimentary canopy out of sticks and leaves and whatever else we can find around on the top of this mountain uh, for, for you. So he, he's, he's just trying to help. That's all. I think he's just trying to do something nice. Uh, he's maybe trying to prolong the moment so we can all wait a bit longer. I think he, he may be trying to do something that feels to him in some way a little bit holy, but it is, in fact, totally ridiculous. You know, let's make an elementary school weird homemade treehouse den from whatever sticks and old stuff we can find around uh, on top of the mountain. It is absurd, and it is pointless. And my professor, John Nolan, says it's even kind of in the way, just a pile of junk. God is present on the holy mountain two of the most significant figures in the whole of the Old Testament have appeared from the dead to discuss with Jesus how he is the fulfillment of the entire canon of Scripture and the moment that they've all been waiting for to fulfill all of the laws and all of the prophecies and to bring salvation history to its very apex in one event within the clouds and within the blinding lightning of the very throne room of God himself. And Peter wakes up, because you know, yawn, and he interrupts to say the equivalent of, would anyone like an umbrella? Luke simply records, and I think this is very kind, This was not knowing what he said. (laughs) No kidding. (laughs) He did not understand. Reaction number one. If you do not understand what God reveals, your behavior might be nice and it might be kind and it certainly might be well meaning, but it will be ridiculous. Churches are full of very strange and very awkward things that people have given to them because they were nice. I don't know if it's on camera, but we've got plenty of weird stuff around. I don't know why we have it. Now for the town. By the way, these reactions get much worse. Reaction number two. The dad says to Jesus, verse 40, I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And Jesus responds by saying to them, Oh, faithless and twisted generation. I don't think he's just shotgunning the crowd. I think he's speaking specifically to the disciples here, and he says, you don't get it. Not really. And because you don't get it, you're not just strange. You're useless. You're powerless. You're ineffective. Every one of us in this room Every one of us within the body of Christ is called to minister in the power of Jesus Christ. We are all priests. If we try and minister without the power of Jesus, we are wasting our time. So we've got this silly, impulsive, kind, but unusual behavior, and now we've got this sort of useless, ineffective behavior. That's reactions one and two. Neither of these is anything compared to reaction number three. Jesus takes the disciples to one side. We're now in the passage after our passage, uh, looking at verse 44. And Jesus takes them to one side to reflect on, on what has been going on. This is discipleship. I tell you to go and do a thing. You go and do a thing. You botch it up. We go and sit down. We talk about what went wrong, and we try again. That's discipleship. So he's doing it. And in verse 44, he says to them, Let these words sink into your ears. Reflecting what God said up on the mountain, he says, listen to me. Then reflecting the discussion on the mountain, he explains, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And then verse 45 says, they did not understand the saying. They understood a little bit. They went completely misunderstanding. They understood that something bad was about to happen. They knew that. Delivered means betrayed, judged, condemned, tormented, whipped, or put to death, which is just about the the most comprehensive one-word description of the cross I could think of. So they understood enough to know that something bad was going to happen to Jesus, and that because something bad was going to happen to Jesus, that it would spoil their plans to ride on his coattails and kind of get in on the glory of the king. But they did not understand why. They did not get the full picture. They did not understand that this moment, horrific though it is, would also at the same time be the fulfillment of all of the law and all of the prophets and the apex of salvation history and the moment they'd all been waiting for, where God himself would use his glory and use his power to atone for us and to lay down his life, to present every single one of us as clean and uh, not a, a local miracle. Or a local sacrifice, bound by time and by space, but an eternal and global, full, perfect, sufficient sacrifice, oblation and satisfaction once and for all upon the cross. So feeling disturbed and disappointed because they didn't quite understand what was being revealed, missing the point of the reveal. What did they do? What do people do when they don't quite get it? Reaction number three. They had a fight. An argument arose among them as to which of them was greatest. If you do not get what the cross reveals, you will remain the center of your own worship life. And if anything at all challenges your idea that this whole world revolves around you and your comfort, you will fight it and you will fight everyone in your way if you have to. It is what we do, every one of us. Back in 2004, Mel Gibson released uh, The Passion of the Christ. I'm sure many of us have seen it, and I went to see it in the cinema with my friend, and uh, someone, I don't know why, someone took to the cinema uh, their, their newborn baby, and they sat at the back of the the room as though that would help with their, their baby. And right at the the baby was very good, but right at the moment of the crucifixion, the moment that the movie is all about, the baby began to cry with piercing screams. And it's a very tense moment in the movie, as you would expect. It was a tense moment in the room. And someone stood up in front of us. So here's the, the scheme: this baby, me and Matt. Angry man in front of us and then the screen at the front with the crucifixion, the passion of the Christ being projected onto the screen. And in fact, the shadow of the man in front of us also silhouetted onto Calvary's hill. And this guy in front of me stood up and he started yelling at the parents of the baby at the back of the room with that South London rasp and plenty of South London language. Get that baby out of here scream. My friend turned to me, and he gestured at the screen, and he said, do they not understand? <laughs> They're back to the cross. Do they not understand? And my response was, well, kind of. This is how people react to the cross. This is how people deal with the discomfort of of discipleship and the cross of Christ when they see the cost and the horror but they do not see the grace and the love what they do is they start a fight left to ourselves we're a little bit awkward and silly we're certainly useless and we're far too ready for a fight but here is the grace here is the grace in our next series, and we have the whole fall to go through it, we'll be looking at the letter of Second Peter. We had a preview of Second Peter in our first lesson today. And uh, in it, the same Peter that misunderstood the point three times, the same Peter that was up on the mountain building a treehouse, and the same Peter that was standing around with the demon not doing anything, and the same Peter that was sitting around the table or whatever, uh, being told by Jesus that he didn't get it, Uh, he, he He says with hindsight, he says that he had been an eyewitness of the majesty on the mountain and that he had received peace in knowledge and grace. Saints, Jesus is revealing this to us. Jesus is revealing to us his grace. If we understand this, if we understand what The cross of Christ reveals. Peter says in the opening paragraph of his letter that we'll look at in more detail that we obtain an equal standing with him. Isn't that remarkable? Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, of those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God, and of Jesus our Lord. If you get what the cross reveals, instead of strange and useless and doing harm, you will become powerful and effective apostles of God, of equal standing with Peter himself. Jesus is calling you to something new by grace through what is revealed. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you in the blinding light of your glory that you chose the horror and the shame of the cross. And of course we can never fathom what this is about, this side of eternity. But would you give to us a new vision, a new glimpse, a new revelation of what it is you've done for us. Would you humble us, Lord Jesus? And would you transform us and make us powerful and effective witnesses for you? In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.